everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today's topic is Lean Impact, Implementing Lean Startup in Mission-Driven Organizations. I'm Heather McGough, Executive Producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 9th through 11th. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. First, can everybody hear me? Go ahead and respond in the chat. Our speakers today are Christy George and Akash Trivedi. Sarah Milstein will be moderating. Christy George is the Director of New Media Ventures, the first national network of angel investors supporting media and tech startups that disrupt politics and catalyze progressive change. She is also a co-founder of Louder, the crowd-powered advertising platform for ideas that matter. Akash Trivedi is one of the business leads on Kiva.org's new program, Kiva Zip, which is being piloted in two geographies, the US and Kenya. Akash manages the Kenya side of the program. In both geographies, Zip is testing ways to leverage technology to make Kiva's existing model more direct. Sarah Milstein is the co-host of the Lean Startup Conference and will be our moderator today. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before asking the question. This is a 45-minute program, and the recording will be available in a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, guys. Thanks so much, Heather. All right, well, Akash and Christy, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to be talking about Lean Impact today. Um, and so since Heather introduced you, I'd like to just dive right in and start with kind of the big picture. Let's talk about why Lean Startup principles are as important, if not more important, in nonprofits, government, mission-driven organizations. Christy, can you start us off? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I feel so passionately about this, uh, largely because entrepreneurs that are working in the social sector, in government or in nonprofit organizations, are really tackling big, thorny, complicated problems. And the idea that massive investments in solutions would be made without testing whether those solutions actually worked feels like not just an inefficient use of resources, but not actually uh, the change that we want to see in the world. So I think there's huge potential to apply Lean Startup to the social sector. Thanks, that's beautifully put. Um, Akash, did you want to jump in and build on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm not sure I'm qualified to suggest whether or not Lean Startup principles are more or less relevant in nonprofits <laughs> versus for-profits. Um, but I can tell you that having worked at Kiva for the past three years and having worked specifically on the Kiva Zip program for the past two years, um, you know, Lean Startup should absolutely be a part of every nonprofit's vocabulary and, and DNA. Um, you know, as Christy mentioned, nonprofits are oftentimes tasked with solving some of the world's thorniest problems. Uh, the challenge, however, is that, you know, I think many of them uh, probably face, um, I'd say, three principal forces that at times seem to pose um, their, their success. Um, the first is around the very nature of their funding sources. Uh, you know, oftentimes having, having to manage so many different stakeholders lends itself to nonprofits having numerous unclear and sometimes competing metrics that they have to measure. 
Uh, at Kiva, I can tell you, we've had institutional donors come to us oftentimes and tell us, hey, we're really curious about breadth of impact. On the other hand, we have corporate you know, donors who are more interested in depth of impact. So it's kind of a, you know, an interesting tightrope to walk. I think even when you figure out how to measure uh, these metrics, uh, you oftentimes have to wait months and sometimes even years to get feedback, right, which is challenging. And then I think the final piece is that, you know, even if you do get actionable feedback, uh, oftentimes nonprofits, government agencies have limited resources to implement these learnings. Uh, so for me, lean startup techniques allow nonprofits to combat these headwinds in kind of three ways. Uh, number one, emphasizing simple, easy metrics and more importantly, directional data. Um, two, the rate of collecting that data, right? More so than the quantity or quality of that data. Um, and I think this is good for two things. You know, number one, I think it allows you to arrive at the right answer sooner. And number two, I think it allows nonprofits to make mistakes, which is a good thing. Um, and I think kind of the final piece is that it, it really minimizes uh, non-value add activities from the value chain. Okay, great. So we're going to come back, I think, and talk a little more about funding and metrics as we go. Let's drill down a little bit and get some examples in so that everybody's sharing some context for what we're talking about. Um, so, Akash, you referred to the Kiva ZIP program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, I think as Heather articulated so well, um, Kiva ZIP is a small pilot program that we launched at Kiva about two years ago. Uh, with the explicit intention of uh, testing different ways that we could leverage technology to make Kiva's existing model more direct. Um, I'd say that there are kind of three principal differences between Kiva.org and uh, KivaZip. Uh, the first is around fund flow. So if you guys are familiar with Kiva, uh, the way it works right now is that the loans that we make to entrepreneurs actually go directly to intermediaries, microfinance institutions the money doesn't actually touch the borrower. It's sent to the MFI on behalf of the entrepreneur. Uh, on Zip, we're actually sending money directly to the entrepreneur. And actually in Kenya, we're using M-Pesa, which is a mobile payment platform, to send money directly to their phone. Uh, the second difference is around interest rates. So even though Kiva loans are 0% interest for our lenders, Right? Our borrowers still have to pay the intermediary interest because they're banks, right? So they still pay 10, 20, 30% interest, uh, which can be prohibitive. Uh, but on Zip, our loans are genuinely 0% interest. Uh, and then kind of the third and final difference is around um, the type of lending that we do. Uh, so in contrast to a lot of banks or financial institutions, Kiva Zip is all about character-based lending. Uh, so we leverage what we call trustee partners. Trustees could either be individuals or organizations. Um, you guys can be trustees yourselves. Um, but the, the idea is that these trustees have a long-term invested relationship with the people that we're trying to serve. Great. So that's exciting stuff. Tell us a little bit about how you've used Lean Startup principles to get where you are or to go where, where you're pointed. No, certainly. So, you know, I think across, kind of going back to the three benefits of lean that we talked about specifically for, for nonprofits, um, we, we've seen benefits across the board. Uh, so in terms of directional data, 
Uh, one of the fortunate things that we have at our disposal at Kiva is the Kiva Fellows Program. So the Fellows Program is a volunteer program that sends uh, smart, uh, talented uh, young adults out into the field uh, to work with our partners and our borrowers. And we've been able to use this program to run 30 experiments, I want to say, in the last 12 months um, on a variety of aspects on the, on, on the model. So we've, we've tested SMS loan applications. We've tested um, uh, models where our best borrowers can endorse other borrowers to test viral mechanics. Um, and we've also tested different acquisition strategies. Um, in terms of rate of learnings, you know, I think we've gotten fairly good at identifying duds when we see them. You know, there have been a bunch of hypotheses that I've had around business ideas um, to solve due diligence, for instance, uh, that just haven't worked out. The data has shown otherwise. Um, and Can I think you give from, us an example of sure. what that looked like on the ground so people have a real sense for that? Yeah, certainly. So, um, again, as I said, kind of we, we've leveraged our, our fellows program. And again, I think we're, we're fortunate enough to be able to do that. But um, we actually have six fellows on the ground right now uh, in Kenya. Uh, each of them are running their own experiment. Um, and those experiments can be focused on the trustee, but they can also be focused on the borrower. Um, so, for instance, I, I mentioned the SMS loan application uh, experiment that we ran. So one of the things that we wanted to do before we went out and built an SMS loan application is actually validate that this is something that could, could work, that borrowers could actually do it, that they had the ability to do it, and that we could actually measure the, the data that came in. So we actually hacked together a solution. We used a third-party vendor. We didn't do anything ourselves. It was all duct tape. Um, but we actually kind of used a Wizard of Oz approach, if you will, to navigate a few borrowers through the flow to see how that actually works. And I think we ran it on, uh, the experiment was on 50 borrowers, um, and we had a 95% um, usable answer uh, percentage. Uh, so pretty phenomenal stats. And again, it's not a huge sample size, but it's directional data. And when you say Wizard of Oz approach, you mean you had put together some kind of technical looking front end, but on the back end, people were manually processing information. That's right. It looked That's automated, right. but That's it right. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Which is a great tactic for learning more quickly. Um, Christy, do you have a couple of examples you want to share? You see so many things. It would be really great to hear a couple of examples that you're seeing out in the mean impact world. Yeah, actually, uh, Akasha's duct tape example reminded me of how Louder first got started. The basic hypothesis that uh, Louder had uh, was that people would pay to uh, support advertising for stuff they cared about to break through mainstream culture. So the first test that that company was uh, doing was for the Story of Stuff project. The idea was to get an ad for the Story of Stuff project on a TV show, a mainstream TV show on A&E called Hoarders. And, you know, at the time there was no louder site. So essentially we had a WordPress site and a PayPal account. And the real test was, could you get people to chip in small amounts of money to get an ad? And uh, I remember that essentially what was happening was as soon as those contributions would come in, um, our team was uh, photoshopping that thermometer to go uh, to go up to make it seem as if it was actually dynamic, and um, and you know for the purpose of testing that hypothesis, it actually worked 
fine. And it meant that we didn't uh, build a ton of stuff that we didn't need to build. Um, and in terms of other stuff that we see, the, there's a couple of examples. I mean, the Obama campaign from 2012 famously uh, ran, you know, more than 500 uh, A-B tests on emails and uh, web pages. And in the world that New Media Ventures funds in, which is the online advocacy space, for me, the most interesting thing is that people have really been using lean startup techniques for a long time. And it's now that there's a kind of common vocabulary and a community of practice around this stuff that uh, we can actually take some lessons from people in the online advocacy space that have been testing uh, emails with big email lists for ages um, and bring them into uh, other verticals in the social sector. That's a great point. Um, certainly a lot of the language does help us all come together and understand some common principles. A lot of the ideas have been out there in different ways for a very long time. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in, I know you guys are, is talking about applying lean startup ideas in a social context. A lot of the projects that, that we're working on have a social component and that can add a lot of variables in to any kind of hypothesis and testing environment. And I'd love to hear some of the challenges you guys are facing with that and, and how you're seeing people address them. Christy, you want to start? Or? Sure. Um, I think uh, uh, Kash sort of uh, mentioned this earlier. I think one of the biggest challenges in the social sector in general is around this distinction between who the customer is. So customer development is such an important part of uh, lean methodology. And in the social sector, there is a real difference between, uh, say, the beneficiary of a service and then the traditional customer who may be paying, who's the donor. And, you know, I, I feel passionately about us as a sector trying to figure out how to navigate this distinction. I don't think I've got any easy answers. I think um, at, at root, uh, most social entrepreneurs that I know are in the social sector to create the change in the world. And so who they care about um, and who they're really oriented toward is the beneficiary of the service or the product. And there is a kind of complicated dynamic that Akash mentioned when he was talking about sort of different kinds of institutional funders when the person that's paying for the service may actually care about a different thing. So the, the real uh, starting point for me is around this uh, introduction of these concepts into not just the social sector, but into the philanthropic sector as well. So that uh, uh, folks that are considering contributions in this space actually understand that this methodology can yield, you know, better, more impactful solutions. I think that's absolutely right. Um, kind of looking at that from a different angle, you know, even on from a zip perspective, you know, one of the things that we've struggled with uh, to a certain extent in Kenya uh, is product market fix, right? Fit, excuse me. So, you know, the, I think Kiva's mission is to connect people from around the world to alleviate poverty. And many of the folks that we're targeting right now uh, are at the bottom of the pyramid. And we've created this web-based solution, right, uh, that doesn't always kind of fit neatly with who we're ultimately trying to serve. Um, so it's kind of uh, same problem, different perhaps uh, take on it, uh, but it's certainly something that we've seen on our end as well. 
Uh, I think another challenge, just to throw this out here from a more tactical level, um, one of the things that we've struggled with um, on our team is essentially managing the velocity, if that makes sense, of validated learnings. Uh, you know, I think when we, when we started using lean startup techniques, we we're super excited. We we're like, this is awesome. We're going to look at our entire value chain. We're going to pick out all the pain points and problems for all of our customers, be it borrowers, trustees, you know, our lenders, and we're going to come up with hypotheses and we're going to test them. The problem is, you know, even when you identify all these validated learnings, you don't necessarily have the resources again to turn those learnings into you know, actionable solutions. Um, and so I think kind of one of the things that we're trying to get better at um, over time is being more strategic about what experiments we run so that we can make sure that when we get those validated learnings, we can right away turn them into something that is meaningful for end customer. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in a way it's a little bit you're being a little leaner about your lean startup process and, right. and trying to really home in right. on the things that you can learn that you'll be able to take action on. Yeah, That's not a, a perfect chain, but it's a good goal. Um, let's go back for a minute and, and keep talking about the, the funder relationships because it's um, a hot question and I think an important distinction. And it's also one, incidentally, that people in the for-profit sector face as well. Um, Everybody needs either, I mean, unless you're completely bootstrapped, you need um, investors or sponsors. If you are starting a project within a very big company, you need people who are going to sponsor that and get behind it. If you are a startup and you're looking for um, VC or angel money. And in all of these cases, you know, in the nonprofit sector where you're looking for um, foundations or grants and government where you need somebody to, you know, green light the project, somebody has to be behind it. And most likely, their frame of reference is about something like a five-year goal with pieces in place that are going to be achieved. The vision is going to be met and here's how we're going to do it. And they don't have a model for thinking about um, a process of learning where things will change every day. And we, we have a vision, but we don't yet know how we're going to be able to, to match it. That's not language that funders are familiar with in, in my experience. So I'd like to just talk a little bit more about how you guys have addressed that. You know, Christy, you said earlier, you think a big part of this is getting funders on board with the process. And I'm curious to hear how you've seen that done successfully, um, either nonprofits that are working with funders in different ways and helping the funders see things differently, or funders that have started to, to rethink the way they're approaching um, the, the grants they're getting. I think that the first uh, thing that I would say is that uh, we kind of need to identify it as a problem or as a gap within the universe of philanthropy. New Media Ventures itself is a startup network of funders and angel investors. And I think we didn't quite appreciate how big a difference uh, there was or how big a spectrum uh, there was within the philanthropic community around how people fund, whether it's strategic philanthropy versus something that looks like uh, lean philanthropy, which I think I may have just made up right now. But uh, <laughs> um, the uh, we had a couple of uh, we had a couple of examples of uh, organizations that we saw where they had a hypothesis, they were testing it. Say it was uh, we've got this change that we want to seek. We're going to get forty thousand people to do this thing, 
And from our perspective, we kind of thought, okay, the right question is, what are you learning? And uh, with partner funders, the question might have been, okay, you didn't do those 40,000, you didn't get those 40,000 emails, um, what went wrong? And so I think there's a real cultural shift that we kind of have to make collectively. It's funders, grantees together, talking about better ways to measure ourselves. Um, there are a couple of people that I've seen that are asking uh, really smart questions around learning. The Draper Richard uh, Kaplan Foundation uh, does it really well. The Knight Foundation now has a prototype fund uh, that really supports uh, basic prototypes and um, an iterative process for things that are just ideas. I think it's really smart. Um, and uh, there are a number of others that are really thinking about how can we shift um, kind of the culture of philanthropy to be able to support uh, this kind of work in the social sector. Yeah. Yeah, Akash, can you talk about that a little bit, how you guys have worked that difference between the funders and the, the clients, the end clients? and some of the ways you've presented the ideas to get funders on board with what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, I think, um, so the honest answer is that Kiva Zip Kenya, at least, is probably um, in a lot of ways too early um, for us to be able to go out and get funding. But one of the things that we have done uh, is we've actually partnered with IPA, um, Innovations for Poverty Action. Um, and actually what they did is on our behalf, uh, they applied for a 50,000 starter grant to basically run a small experiment to validate whether or not the core premise of Kiva Zip's model, which is kind of social underwriting, as we alluded to earlier, right, if that actually works. Um, and so, you know, I think there are probably a lot of organizations like IPA out there that might be kind of good people to connect with to validate right, what you're doing uh, from a reputable source, source so that you can actually go out and get those bigger dollars, if that makes sense. Um, actually, on the US side, you know, um, Christy brought up the Knight Foundation. They're actually uh, one of our uh, funders. Um, so that kind of corroborates what Christy was saying. Um, I'm not too familiar with the US side of the program. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it does seem like there are institutions and corporations that are more willing to take bets, and there also seems like there are third parties like IPA that can kind of give you a proof of concept if you need to go out and get the bigger dollars. But it's you know, interesting when you say, oh, sorry, Christy. You know, yeah. I was just, uh, one of the things that Akash just reminded me of is that one of the reasons the culture shift seems to be so difficult is that funders and grantees aren't often in the same room just to think about uh, better ways of doing this stuff. It is often that when you are in the same room, um, it's around a transaction. And so there are funder-only meetings and entrepreneur meetups, but there aren't that many places where people can come together to actually understand how sort of uh, decisions get made in each of those worlds. So it's, um, it, I'm sure that the say, the, there's a similar analogy in the other kind of uh, situations you mentioned, either in a sort of big corporate uh, situation where you're trying to do lean startup or entrepreneurship, um, or in a venture capital situation where um, essentially your meeting is around the pitch. But it strikes me that one of the ways to do the culture shifting is to have these conversations in more and more fora where people are actually together, not in a pitch contest or context. 
Right. That's a great point. I mean, there's a level of both education and collaboration with funders that might be important at this stage and maybe for a number of years to help make that kind of a shift. Because certainly a lot of funders who don't share the understanding about Lean Startup do share the vision for, for sure. changing the world. <laughs> you know, they are excited about that and they want to get behind things that are going to work. So having some conversations about what that really means, um, that could really be exciting. I think that's a very interesting idea. And might just be some like informational get-togethers to talk about how things are going differently at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you said something before that I thought was interesting when you said that zip is too early to say, um, which suggested to me that you guys are still feeling things out before you're going to go look for more money. Can you just talk about that a little bit? What's yeah. the, the funnel looking like for you there? Absolutely. So, you know, I think kind of one of the unique dynamics about Cuba Zip in a lot of ways is it's kind of a startup within a nonprofit, right? And so it's all self-financed at this point. We have a very small Skunk Works team uh, working on Zip. Um, and so I think for us, um, the reason we kind of strategically picked Kenya and the U.S. is because in some senses we see Kiva Zip as being at the intersection of crowdfunding and mobile payment technology. Um, and, you know, the U.S. with obviously Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all those sites and Kenya with M-Pesa, as we talked about, we really see it being at the forefront of this revolution. Uh, so for us, it's really about kind of making sure that this model uh, works in both of these geographies um, and that kind of the viral mechanics are in place the kind of the risk mitigants are in place uh, for us to actually be able to scale this before we actually go out and try to make a business case um, on a larger scale, either internally, right, uh, to get more, you know, of our OPEX dollars directed at KeepAzit, but even externally, right? Um, uh, and I think kind of we've gotten that feedback as well uh, from, you know, various funders who are absolutely thrilled and excited about what we're doing, uh, but because there's no comparable, right, they need to see a little bit more data, which is, again, why we're working with IPA, a reputable kind of third party um, that, by the way, has done some work with Give Directly. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Um, to basically validate what we're doing before we actually go forward. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important idea. It's true in so many contexts when you're trying to convince people uh, of a new process or a new product using a small example that you validate the idea with and then can demonstrate and say, we want to keep going, um, rather than saying, we're starting off today with a new project. It's millions of dollars and every lean startup jargon you've ever heard of um, doesn't tend to fly. But starting off small with what you call the skunk works, which is, you know, the idea of um, having a self-contained project within an organization that's working on its own project, that can often be a successful model for figuring out, maybe it doesn't work, you might invalidate the ideas, but it gives you something to, to build on um, and demonstrate. Let's just talk for a sec. I'm sorry, Chris, you look like you had something to say on that. I was going to say that um, one other example uh, is a company that we were involved with early on, Upworthy, which is now, you know, hailed as one of the fastest growing media startups of all time, actually started in a very similar way within MoveOn. So, you know, a couple of years ago, 
the idea that you could uh, take social issue content or media that matters and make it quote unquote go viral uh, was you know pretty laughable at some level. But I think that the idea of using that small test within MoveOn was what actually allowed Upworthy before there was even an Upworthy. You know, there was no thing at that point to actually prove that this could possibly work. So I think it's a, it's a great model for actually uh, sort of proving those early hypotheses. Yeah, right. You can have a big vision and you start with some small testing that helps validate the idea. Um, let's talk about the mechanics of that for a minute. Um, what did it take to create a Skunk Works team within Kiva? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I, I got to give a lot of credit to the management team. Uh, Matt Flannery, who's the CEO at Kiva, and also Premal Shah, who's the president. Um, you know, I think uh, to give you guys a little bit of context, um, when Matt started Kiva back in 2005, uh, he actually had the idea of a direct lending platform um, but, you know, unfortunately, kind of technology wasn't in place to be able to facilitate that. So he's trying to actually send money to people's bank accounts, uh, which just didn't work. And you can imagine if you extrapolate that over multiple geographies, thousands of borrowers, it's just a nightmare. And so that's kind of how the MFI model came to be. But I think this was always the original vision and intent of Kiva to a certain extent. Um, which is why kind of when, when Matt and Premel kind of caught wind of a lot of the burgeoning mobile payment uh, movements in East Africa and elsewhere, um, you know, they, they kind of, from a management team perspective, but all the way down, uh, decided to kind of create space and room for a self-contained team to be able to operate and test on this concept. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think kind of, from a from a communication standpoint, that you know invariably kind of you know means setting expectations up front. Uh, you know, at a large organization, even one as you know with a hundred people like Kiva, right, with a lot of existing processes and infrastructure, uh, you can imagine that there are a lot of inter interdependencies. So to kind of set expectations up front that you know, guys, this is what we're going to test. We're going to try it out. We'll see how it goes. I think did a lot of good, even though it sounds hokey and you know, kind of uh, you know, surface level. I think that did a lot of good to kind of create the space that we needed to kind of test and learn. Uh, and then also, as I said, kind of establishing a cross-functional team. So we have two engineers on Zip. Uh, our CTO works half time on Zip, uh, and then we also have uh, a few business resources. So I think that also gave us kind of the self-sufficiency that we needed to be able to build our own website. It's a separate website that doesn't touch the Kiva brand, right? Um, uh, or, you know, it, it does now, but kind of when we started, it was kind of ring-fenced, if you will. Uh, and so that allowed us to kind of move quickly unencumbered uh, by kind of the processes that already existed with, within the company. Yeah, I think those cross-functional teams are such a key part of making, of being able to test things, certainly within a Skunk Works kind of an environment. So as you said, you've got some independence. Um, do you, is the Skunk Works team held to different standards in terms of metrics than everybody else? So, you know, I think um, we had a little bit of leeway <laughs> the first year, year and a half that we were around. Um, 
you know, we, we did aspire to, we kind of set aside five metrics that we as a team wanted to aspire to. Um, and I think that kind of served us well uh, during the alpha stage, if you will. Um, but, you know, obviously now as things are a bit more calcified and it's now trying, time to prove that business case, as I said, both internally and externally, um, uh, you know, slowly we're starting to uh, align ourselves with Kiva's overall top line metrics, right? So uh, proving operational self-sufficiency, for instance, uh, is, is one of the things that we're going to be focusing on the ZIP team uh, this upcoming year in 2014. Interesting. Let's talk a little more about metrics because it's an important one. You both referred to it. It's a hard thing to figure out. Um, and I'd like to talk both about kind of the challenges, why is it so hard, and some successes around things that we can measure that are meaningful, that are meaningful beyond how many Twitter followers and how many dollars spent and how many emails sent. It, Christy, as you referred to earlier, you know, a campaign that was supposed to send 40,000 emails learned what they needed to learn 4,000 emails in. The number of emails they sent was the wrong measure. So what are the right things, different for every project, but how do you start homing in on that? Um, Christy, can you talk about that a little bit with projects you've worked on or seen? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, first, maybe I'll sort of mention the challenges of it um, and Akash had on one of them very early on in the conversation, which is that social change uh, often takes a really, really long time. And so it can be difficult to sort of figure out um, what it is you're measuring and how to do it. The other thing that's challenging in the work that uh, we do is that um, it's really hard often to isolate, uh, say in the world of online campaigns, that it was your campaign that actually moved the lever on an issue. And we think all of us have been following the sort of current political dysfunction and in that kind of context it's really challenging to know was it your campaign that moved the needle even even sort of uh, when you win um, and then the third thing that's challenging is I think uh, lots of entrepreneurs that I know uh, really uh, try to shy away from vanity metrics in general they they know that um, Twitter followers and uh, likes on Facebook um, only tell one piece of a story um, but in the media universe that we operate in and in the social change universe, often uh, what people are actually trying to do is culture change. And so the story is sort of part of the success, the sort of long-term success um, that they are going after. Hmm. So when you say culture change in that regard, you're talking about culture change that's external to the organization. Totally. Right. A lot of times when we're talking about lean startup, we're talking about uh, culture change that's internal. Yeah. Because we're trying to get people to work in a different way. Um, so that's an interesting kind of a distinction. Um, are there any particular examples of metrics you've seen that you think are helpful for people to use? Just an, even a specific example that might not be broadly applicable, but one where metrics helped an organization learn rather than you know, fulfilled uh, an old school funder kind of mission? I think that um, one of the things I've seen people really focusing on is actually the cost of getting new users. Um, it actually makes them focus on how those people are coming, coming to them and how long uh, that they might keep them on board. So 
it's not typically a metric that I've seen in the social sector, but increasingly it makes people drill down into kind of how and why people are getting to them. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. Um, of course, you would use it a little differently in the social sector than in the for-profit sector, but that's a great uh, metric. It really does make you understand your role within your, your market. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Are you able to talk about any a specific org that's doing that? Um, anyone we can name? I will try to think about it and come back okay. to you. <laughs> um, Akash, do you have any, on the metric side, you've talked about it a number of times, about things you're measuring. Right. Are there things that you guys are measuring that you think are a little bit different that folks might not be aware of and that are particularly helping you learn? So this might be slightly controversial. Um, Bring but it. One <laughs> of the metrics that we're actually using as a proxy for impact, believe it or not, is net promoter score. Um, and so net promoter score, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with, is typically um, a tool that a lot of for-profit companies like Apple, Google will use to measure their brand uh, strength. Uh, and so while, you know, it's certainly not um, directly, you know, um, related to impact in some senses, you know, when we think about impact in, as a nonprofit traditionally, you know, kind of as it pertains to Kiva, you think about, uh, you know, the delta in income created, right? Employment opportunities created. Are you sending kids to school? All those sorts of things. But I think in a world where, as um, Christy mentioned, uh, feedback loops are quite long, uh, and in a world where, uh, you know, kind of world that we're navigating, which is quite abstract, and again, there are no comparables, for us, knowing that our customers, both our trustees and our borrowers, are happy, right? is actually a pretty good proxy for you know letting us know whether or not we're moving in the right direction and obviously as things start to calcify and as we start to put the infrastructure in place uh, and we start to figure out how we can actually get data because one of the cool things about kiva zip by the way is that we for the first time at kiva have the ability to get borrower level data right so Kiva.org works with institutions, and so we have institution-level data there. But this is the first time we're actually going to be able to see true impact on an individual basis. Um, but I think, you know, once all the elements and fundamentals are in place for us to do that, we'll be able to get there, right? But first things first, we just want to know that our product is actually making people happy and is actually something that they would promote to other people. Yeah, I think you brought up two really great things there. Um, one is, you know, the, the long cycles, which you guys referred to earlier. It's really important to find some ways to get feedback loops in much more quickly if your cycles are months or years long so that you're not going down a path that's not going to work out um, for too long. And I, I love that you have found something that works that's interim and the idea of a proxy i think is the other thing that you mentioned that's super important we can't always get direct data that helps us figure out whether we're we have validated an idea or not but sometimes we can figure out something that stands in that gives us a signal and gives us a sense of whether to keep moving whether to double down and and keep going in a direction um i think that's controversial or not on the net promoter score i think it's smart to, to play with different things and one question on that with the net promoter, is that something that you're doing, you're asking the questions both to the borrowers and to the trustees? That's right. That's right. 
And are you finding parallel responses? So one of the things that I think we need to work on kind of in the spirit of transparency uh, is that we need to uh, work on the trustee value proposition. Uh, so, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, KivaZip right now is 0% interest, which means our trustee partners are not getting anything um, financial uh, in the way of uh, kind of endorsing these borrowers on our behalf. Um, and so, you know, I think we need to find intangible, uh, or, sorry, non-monetary uh, means of compensating them, but also potentially down the line, you know, even play around with the idea of financial compensation. Uh, but I think one of, the, one of the benefits of keeping it small, uh, to use a lean startup term, we can use the concierge method, if you will, of making sure that, you know, each of our trustee partners is treated like a um, even in a world where we have duct tape and uh, you know things are quite manual, uh, but but I will you know I'd be remiss to say if I didn't admit that that's kind of uh, you know something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, you know, obviously for borrowers, um, you know, as long as we keep sending them money and we're doing a good job of serving them and being trustworthy, you know, I think they'll be quite happy with uh, with the way things are going. Um, but you know the trustees we got to work on. Yeah, right. Interesting. Um, Christy, did you want to jump back in with another example or two? Yeah. Uh, well, one from your original question, I was just thinking. Uh, Ethical Electric is a great company that's really uh, thinking about the cost of customer acquisition. Uh, they allow people to uh, choose where their energy comes from, um, and I think a lot of other organizations in the online advocacy space do the same. But one uh, thing that I was just thinking about, I'm so intrigued by this proxy for impact um, in the way that Akash has described it, because it reminds me that when we talk about uh, funders in the social sector, we really should be clear on the different kinds of funders there are and the reasons why they make those decisions. I think I often am thinking about institutional funders. And in this um, trustee model, we're actually talking about individuals, right? And why they make the decisions they do when they're not getting any kind of financial return. Presumably, um, none of the philanthropic institutions we were talking about earlier, they're not getting a financial return either, but have their own uh, sort of intersection of interests that make them make decisions. And um, given that we've just started in the world of philanthropy, we're learning a lot more about why people make decisions. And it's not just that, um, you know, you know this solution is going to work and therefore as a funder you're going to put your money behind it. People are making their approximate guesses on those kinds of things and there's probably a lot more that we could do as a sector to kind of delve into how and why decisions get made around funding. You know, it, it strikes me that really what you're talking about and what you were saying earlier about meeting and collaborating with funders, it's really a matter of a customer development process totally. on the funder side and totally. coming to understand better what their motivations are and how they're going to interact with you in the long run. Um, so we had one question. A lot of the things that people are asking in the chat were kind of incorporating into the conversation, but we had one that's jumped out and I wanted to get to that um, before we get to the end of this. Um, people are asking, how do you get, what are the best practices for introducing lean startup methodologies to people who are in a decision-making position in an organization? We talked a little bit before about doing you know, something that helps validate the idea. 
but I wonder if you guys could each give an example of where you've seen people um, who are perhaps lower down in the hierarchy of an organization help sell it up the chain. I've seen organizations do this really with examples. So um, everyone is kind of susceptible to wanting to know what uh, other people are doing. And I've <laughs> often found if uh, you're in a hierarchical institution that the best way to do that is to kind of say, hey, look at this experiment that these guys ran uh, over here. And I think in the social sector, we're increasingly seeing more, more people be vocal about the things that worked and didn't. And I think that's, uh, you know, just like any buy-in process, um, sort of giving people examples of it working in other places is one way of actually getting buy-in when, you know, you're otherwise sort of just being stonewalled on the issue. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, to give you guys a couple, maybe one concrete example, um, uh, you know, on the kind of the Kiva Zip uh, team, uh, I'd say kind of on the Kenya side, we started adapting lean startup principles um, a little bit earlier than the U.S. side. Um, and we're focusing primarily on, um, at least initially, on cycle times. Um, so if you look at the value chain of Kiva Zip, that is to say everything that we do to serve these loans, right, there were significant gaps between each step in the value chain. Um, in large part due to a lot of operational inefficiencies. Uh, so leveraging lean startup principles to actually, you know, increase the throughput, if you will, of our loan volume and being able to demonstrate that, hey, you know, we were able to do 40 loans a month, you know, six months ago, now we're able to do 170 a month. You know, I think, I think any rational actor, hopefully, will kind of look at that data, that example, as Christy said, and really kind of latch on to it. I think that's the most powerful way to, uh, you know, make a business decision around lean startup. Business case, excuse me. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's wrap up. That's great advice. Um, let's wrap up with a little more advice. Um, I would love to hear from each of you kind of what, like what's the one piece of advice that you'd give mission-driven organizations that are looking to implement lean startup um, you know, at the beginning. So the one thing that I would say that we really uh, try to think about at New Media Ventures, and it, it you know, we're, it's always a kind of constant process of learning, is to really be clear on what your fundamental assumptions are. I think uh, as I've sort of struggled and worked to try to e implement Lean Startup in our own work, what often comes up as a roadblock is that there's an assumption underneath the assumption that I thought we were making, and we keep kind of going backwards until we get to the really, the really root assumption that we're making, and that's sort of been the biggest process for me is um, there's usually a couple assumptions underlying the assumption you think you're testing, and to sort of get really clear on what that assumption is from the very beginning. Yeah, can you give us an example of that? It's a great point. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, New Media Ventures, our, our goal is to create some social change in the world. Uh, we had a hypothesis that, uh, that there was a lot of potential for technology and innovation to uh, be used by people in the movement to create progressive change and that the real gap was around uh, financing. And as we unpack that metaphor, you know, it turns out that there's lots of gaps and the money is just part of it. And 
uh, the money may need to move earlier and uh, it may not be the money that's the problem. There's a whole bunch of other things that are uh, attached to that that you sort of need to think about in addition to the money. And so um, as we iterate our own model, it's, it's uh, challenging for us to kind of uh, look at what our original assumption was and move backwards and say, okay, what is, uh, what is that assumption based on? Um, and kind of takes steps, steps back from there. And I suspect we'll probably move back a couple more times. Right, right, thank you. Um, yeah. Akash, advice, the one piece of advice you'd give companies looking to implement Lean Startup? Sure, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quickly piggyback off of Christy and then uh, maybe give a, another quick piece of advice, but uh, kind of along those lines, um, I think it's really important um, to, and it, there's a balance here, right? You know, um, I say that because I'm, I'm a huge advocate, advocate, excuse me, for getting out the door and, you know, getting out the building and testing and learning. Uh, but I do think on occasion uh, you have to kind of uh, take those blinders off and reconnect with your original vision of who you want to target, um, what your ultimate vision for the product is. Um, you know, I think testing and iterating five feet in front of you will help you avoid a lot of potholes, but you very well might summit the wrong mountain. Um, I'm not saying you know, we're doing that on zip, but you know, I think it's something that even we have to keep in mind, um, even in our little startup, um, because it, it is something that I think um, kind of serves as the foundation for everything that you do. Um, and then real quick, kind of another thing that I've kind of learned the hard way over the last 12 months is that it sounds obvious, but disproving your hypothesis is not a failure, right? Not getting data is a failure. Um, and there have been, you know, plenty of examples, I think, um, that I've seen where, you know, I was really excited about an idea, uh, but the data just proved otherwise. And actually, if you ask me, if you put me on the spot, things I'm most excited about um, on zip are actually the things that we decided not to do versus the things that we did do uh, because to me you know as Christy said when you're tackling some of these abstract fundamental problems uh, that you know so many people are going to be depending on you don't have the luxury of you know getting it wrong you need to come up with the most optimal relevant solution and I think the best way to do that is to cut out what doesn't work all right. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you both so much for making the time today. Um, to learn more about Lean Startup and particularly about Lean Impact, we will be focusing on it quite a bit at the Lean Startup Conference, which is December 9th through 11th in San Francisco. You can learn more at leanstartup.co. Again, thanks to Akash and Christy. And Heather, back over to you to close us out. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast, Putting the Lean and Lean Startup on November 18th. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference, held on December 9th through 11th in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs>